Well, good morning. It's, don't know if the sound system is working. I can't really tell from here. Can you all? Does anybody not hear me? Wave your hand. <laughs> it's very good of you to all come and see me, especially after you've had such a busy weekend, I'm sure. Um, I'm Stephen Cameron. I'm a reader in computer science here at the university, uh, based at the Department of Computer Science and also a tutorial fellow at Keeble College. And for the last 25 years or so, I've been playing with robots when they let me. And today I'm going to talk largely about um, the stuff we've been doing over the last few years and the rest of the world has been doing over the last few years concerning robot football and other things. It's not just football. Let's see. Is the technology going to work? That's better. So why should we have robots playing football? One slide answer. One slide answer. There we go. Basically, if we could manage to get robots to play a decent game of football, we would have solved many useful, much more useful problems in AI, robotics, life, the universe, and everything. In particular, our robots would have to be able to move sensibly under nasty conditions. Mud and everything you get out in the real world. They'd have to be able to sense where the ball was, where the other robots are, where the human players are. Because the, the final aim of all of this activity is to actually have robots playing against humans. We're a little bit way off that yet. But. And also there's a, an awful lot of what we call planning Basically, intelligence autonomy. We need to be able to get these machines to communicate with one another and decide what to do and do useful stuff. And that's really hard. So that's why, if we could get robots to play football, we would have solved a lot of the problems that we have in my particular field. Now, what's, why is that not always working? Um, why football itself? Surely we could solve... We could, we could satisfy all those goals, if you excuse the pun, by doing other things rather than playing football. Well, foot, robot football was pushed as a grand challenge project. Basically, something that's easy to state, but is very hard to solve, and in solving it, it does do all those wonderful things. Now, let's try leaving out. And we shouldn't forget that well, certainly one of the things we're trying to do in all of this is to infuse the next generation, and to be honest, the one after that, that science and technology and robots and AI and intelligence are actually useful things to do. Again, it's a relatively easy problem to state. We want to build robots that can play football to a reasonable standard. Um, so almost anybody could understand what it is we're eventually trying to do, and also, little parts of the problem can be tackled with relatively few resources. You don't need to be big research labs to get involved in this stuff. You can be school groups, and school groups do get involved. So what am I going to talk about? Um, basically, how we got to where we are now, where we're actually able to start doing football experiments, um, the history of robot soccer itself, what is actually going on right now in terms of these activities and what we're doing here in Oxford. So, Xi, do you want to do fire up the now and we'll do a quick demo of a, uh, a the sort of robot that's used right now for playing football games? 
So Jima is the research student who's been working, who's actually the guy that's managed to do a lot of the stuff that I'm going to talk about today. I say research student, he's actually successfully now finished his research degree, so he's now Dr. Ma. <laughs> and this is our now robot. That's the, that's the brand name. You might guess which part of the world G comes from. <laughs> we did. It's, it, this is pre-programmed. Yeah. <laughs> Yes? <laughs> we can make it do it again later if you like. My name is now. Nice to see you here. The main, really the main point of doing this sort of demo is to show what these robots are capable of. This is something you can go out and buy if you've got a reasonably thick checkbook right now. Um, and it comes with the ability to do that sort of staggery walk. Um, it's got lots of motors and joints and, and speakers and things. And this sort of technology has been pushed by essentially the toy industry over the last decade. So we now have these tools available that allow us to play robot football. But... I'm now going to go on and talk about how we got to that point. If you talk about robots, then people have been thinking about robots for many, many years. Here's a couple of false robots, really. Um, this is uh, a picture of a device that was supposed to be a robot playing chess from a couple of centuries ago. Actually, there was a midget hiding in the table, doing the chess game. Uh, and this is a, a more, this is about 50 years old, I think, this particular design. It's an electromechanical dog. It just wagged its tail and did things, but it didn't really do anything we might associate as a robot. If you think, ask most people what they think of as robots, they think about this sort of thing, what Hollywood has told us and the like. Right? So we've got um, these two uh, from Star Wars up here, uh, Lost in Space and Metropolis. What these robots all have in common is that they're all worked by somebody sat inside a suit, right, moving around. If you look at what was really going on in robotics over the last 30, 40 years, this is what you find, industrial robots. They've appeared in all sorts of places. Um, this is one of the first industrial robot arms back here. This is a, a very common robot arms from the 1980s and 90s. This is a whole lot of arms that are really just like that one. Uh, doing things in car factories. So that's where you tend to see this sort of technology. Places where you need slight variations between models, um, but you're building lots of stuff. This is a bit different. This is actually a six-legged robot. So people have been experimented with legged robot design, which is what we're interested in here, for quite some time. So by 
1995, there were quite a few robots in the world, but they were all of that industrial design. They were pretty boring, um, and there were uh, lots of robots in industry, and a lot of people in research labs had tried to build intelligent robots and had basically discovered that intelligent robotics was a hard problem to solve. And it was at that point that a group of researchers from Korea, Japan, and France sat down, I guess, in a bar one night and said, well, wouldn't it be, what could we do to sort of push the state of the art a bit? I know, let's get robots to play football. And that's basically what they suggested, and all the work that's been going on in robot football since then came from those early meetings in the late 90s. So what is RoboCup then? It's a grand challenge project for robotics. Grand challenge, something that's difficult to do, but inspirational and also very easy to state. And the goal, again, sorry about that word, is to beat the best human team in the world by the year 2050. I have no idea whether we're going to manage that. I'm, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put big money down on it. It's a really hard problem to solve. Um, but we're learning a lot along the way. How is all this set up? Well, there's basically two international organizations that run robot soccer events. There's one called FIRA, the Federation of International Robot Soccer Associations, and one called RoboCup, which is run by an organiz a charitable organization called the RoboCup Trust. They basically do both, they do pretty similar things for the most part, but they have differences about the way they're organized and some of the other competitions that are also part of all of this. So we started off with robots you know, back in 1995, and they said, let's try and play football. The very first thing they realized is that nobody had invented these things yet. This is our condo robot. This is the first legged robot we had. You can buy this as a kit. We did buy this as a kit for just over £1,000. And G spent, spent an interesting month trying to put it together because although he's Chinese, Chinese and Japanese aren't the, sa aren't the same and the instructions are all in Japanese. But we learned a lot from that. And it's basically built out of um, model aircraft parts in the, in the sense that we've got lots of servo motors, the sorts of things you find in, in model aircraft. So it's basically put together like that and it's mass produced, relatively cheap. So the early work on robot football, they, these organizations came together and said, OK, we need some sort of rules, some sort of common games. Um, what should we have? They had different leagues depending on the size of the robots. So you had small wheeled robots and larger wheeled robots. And, now, and then after that, simulation leagues. Building simulations of robots, um, which allowed us to do tests outside the limitations of the real robots. And it also means that people who are not in mechanical engineering labs could also have a go at this. There we go. So this is some early wheeled robots doing this sort of thing. Now what's going on here is that we've got some small robots, and they're about this big, six-inch cubes. And we're looking from above, and they're basically going around, knocking a ball around this pitch. Sounds great, um, but they're cheating in a, way, in a big way, 
Because the, the only way that these robots know where the ball is and where the other players is, is because there's an overhead camera that's taking a picture of everything and working out where everything is. The robots themselves are not working out where everything else is. But this sort of device was very, very popular, relatively cheap. People could start looking at how the team would come together, what the mechanics were of kicking, um, you know, what, what are the right team formations to score goals, all that sort of thing. Okay, why has robot football come of age? Why is this something that we can now start doing? And I can come and do this, and almost 3,000 people can go to a, a, a big hall in Istanbul, like we did a few months ago, and talk about football and other things. Why has it come of age? Well, it's basically that over the last 15 years since this whole idea was started up, computers, cameras because that's what we use to sense where the ball is, and batteries have all got smaller, lighter, and more capable. We like our gadgets. Yeah. The fact that most of the reason why all this stuff works now is because we like our mobile phones, we want our mobile phones to run for longer, we want them to have better cameras. All that miniaturization and economies of scale have really paid off dividends in this robot football stuff. So that's one part of it. Another part of it is that we've also learned how to do some of the computational tasks better. Remember my saying that there's a lot of intelligence that you have to program into these robots if you want to actually eventually play soccer. You somehow have to be able to do that, and we've been sat away in research labs thinking about these problems for the last 15 years and before that. Also, another reason is that me the mechanisms themselves have also developed largely because of the toy industry. We now get cheap, reliable toys that have parts that have been designed, and taking those design principles, we can build things like this, relatively cheaply. I say relatively. Um, that one down here, if you go out and try and buy one of these today, that will cost you around about £5,000. So if you want to build intelligent robots, what do you need? You basically need three components. You need um, some way of sensing what's out there. And cameras are the most obvious way of doing that for the robot football problem. You need to be able to work out what to do next. You need those algorithms. You need to work out how to actually get the robots to do things. And you need some way of being able to affect the motions. I, I say it in terms of actions here because this is something that isn't just true of robot football. It's true of lots of other issues in intelligent robotics. So you can have other sorts of robots. Also, you need the ability to affect movement. And as I say, largely the um, uh, improvements in mechanisms and the like have come to the fore over the last few years to help us do that. So roll forward a few years from that last video. And this is more like the sort of thing you'll see if you go to one of these competitions now. This is, a, this is basically a promo video from one of the teams. So they're showing all the you know, how these things get put together and the electronics and everything. Um, and in a minute, it will show some actual little gameplay. So these are slightly bigger robots than the last ones I showed you. Still the same principle, everything being sensed by sticking a camera up in the roof. Sensing is one of, our, is one of the things that's holding us back right now with all this stuff, right? 
Um, but this stuff is actually fast, furious gameplay. They've got little kickers on them. They will actually kick, right? They've got, um, and they're actually, they're actually engaging in team activities. They're actually deciding, you know, okay, if I go down on the left wing, you go round on the right wing, ready to do a pass. And all this is being decided by the computers. And it really is very fast stuff. Um, and uh, they do actually score goals quite often. But then they get into huddles like this, right? <laughs> they're not quite sure what to do if they've got everybody around, you know. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. <laughs> so I said that the thing we're interested in here is not so much wheeled robots, but legged robots. So legged robots started to come in in the early 2000s with things like this. Home, de home design devices or research lab design devices put together and this has very much been the state of the art for the first decade of the 21st century. I've been going to these competitions now for about five years and believe it or not it's amazing how much they've improved in that time <laughs> because you went five years ago and then the question was, was how long would that robot stay up before it would fall over? So, game, relatively simple technology, but it's very hard to keep a, a two-legged robot stable. Let's move on to another piece of video there. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the simulation side, because that's one of the things we've spent a lot of time doing. Not everybody has the equipment and the know-how, and indeed the, the hard cash, in order to build real, real robots. And also, there are plenty of those software problems, those algorithm problems, still waiting to be solved. A lot of those can be tackled by building simulations, and they can be tackled cheaper than doing it on the real robot. It also allows us to design the next generation of robot. We can actually design them in simulation, check to make sure that everything seems to work there before anybody tries to build one physically, because they're, they're pretty costly as prototypes. And finally, with simulations, it allows the poor um, researchers to, to participate. And for the last few years, that's been us, because we haven't had much of a budget for doing this sort of thing. Um, this year, we've actually got some real robots we can play football with instead. It also allows things like school groups to get involved. Yeah. You can have school um, science groups coming in and actually building their own simulated robot football players. So here's an early simulation league. This is on the, leg, on the wheeled side. So a bit slow, this video. It's amazing how much video uh, technology has changed in the last few years as well. But it's, you know, what you've got in there is the sort of thing that any 10-year-old uh, would recognize from a computer game. Right? You've got a lot of what we call agents, things that can move, and you've got stuff going on in the world, and you've got the computer there simulating it all. I said that in 1995, these, uh, the robot soccer uh, organizations came into being thinking about doing robot football and solving that problem of how do we beat the best human players in the world by 2050. They very quickly realized that what they had in their hands with these competitions was a way of trying to improve science and technology education across the world. And so 
Both of those organisations spend a lot of time, in fact, nowadays, doing educational activities as well. So both of them have simplified what they call junior competitions, which are there to try and infuse young people. And they've also moved away from just doing football. They do other robotic-type activities as well as football itself. So for the last few years, we've been going to the RoboCup competitions because you know, you've, it's... it's uh, a bit tricky switching from one competition to the other, although we're probably going to do that next year. Um, and for RoboCup, what they do there is that they have a number of regional competitions across, uh, across the world, across the year. So, for example, the nearest regional competition to us is in Germany, once a year. And they have a big world championship somewhere in the world every year. And this year it was this in Istanbul in July. Um, and there were 2,800 participants, the searchers. Half of those were under 18. There are schools groups all across the world building devices coming in to do this sort of activity. What they've also done, RoboCup that is, the RoboCup Trust, is added two extra activities to the football activities. One called At Home, which is looking at the possibility of robots being used in the home, and one called RoboCup uh, Robo Rescue. I'll explain about those now. Anyway, RoboCup Junior, as I say, the goal of that is to get young people interested in science and technology and robotics. So what they use is a simplified version of the football and rescue challenges. I haven't told you about the rescue challenges yet, but they use simplified versions. They use things like Lego Mindstorms robots. They use slightly more uh, chunkier robots where you've actually got to get your own bits of metal out and bend them and build the electronics. And another very popular one is the robot dance competitions, where they will build robots that can dance with the young people. Um, so here are some of the participants from, uh, I think it was 2008, this one. Uh, um, you know, very, very proud, these youngsters, of, their, of their, uh, their devices. So this young lady here, she couldn't wait to let me photograph her with her robot. <laughs> and the rules of these competitions are such that um, you, it has to be the young people doing the design and the build. They have judges there that after the dance the dances have taken place, we'll get the youngsters to one side and say, well, exactly how did you do this and how did you do that to make sure it's them and not their parents or their science teachers that put these things together. Yeah. And as I say, over a thousand people, you know, youngsters like this at one of these events, in there, learning about science, talking to people from all across the world, trying to, trying to build these things. Um, these, are, these are relatively young participants. If you go up a few years to the uh, teenage group. This is one of my favorite uh, dances. <laughs> this is a school in Ipswich that won the competition back in 2008, <laughs> this particular entry. <laughs> um, sorry. Didn't mean to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to try and push it forward. I, was try I went to aim for the laser pointer and got the other button instead. Um, there's actually, 
a quick shot of their robot without its clothes on, as it were, there. <laughs> See if I can pick it out again when it comes back in. There it is, over here. Right. So you've got the mannequin head, and then they put the clothes on on top. Again, the kids have to design and build the robot themselves. Teachers can tell them, give them some hints. Can you spot the robot? Does the robot just follow a pre-programmed sequence? Yes, or does it does. Does it synchronize itself with the music or something? Well, both. Yeah, they're always using the same music soundtrack. So they can just do it by time. So once, but it synchronizes itself at the beginning of the soundtrack. Okay. But yeah, it's just doing it all by time. Yeah. Um, so there we are. In 2008, we were world champions at something. And did anybody here know about that? I don't know. <laughs> um, I think the girls got pretty tired of doing that because they got all the way through to the finals and won and they kept being asked to do the, the thing time and time again. They did that dance about eight times in three days. Um, should also point out it's actually a mixed school, so they actually had boys working on the robot itself. They just didn't let, didn't let them dance. <laughs> so that's maybe an extreme version of what goes on at RoboCup. Um, there's also simplified versions of the soccer competition. I haven't got any video of this, but basically that's tabletop soccer. So you've got a small pitch here, little robots that are built by the kids going around trying to score goals against other teams. Right. Um, one thing you discover when you go to RoboCup is how many Iranian teams are out there. Iran is sticking a lot of cash into these activities because they're very interested in getting a scientifically um, 
a, a, or a, a set of you know, youngsters that understand science. Interesting, that. Anyway, anyway so that's, that's the junior leaks. Then there's at home. That's a relatively new idea where they try and build robots that are useful in the home. So what they're doing, it, they currently use single robots with wheels, but with arms as well, arms and heads as well. I'll show you in a second. And it's looking at problems like voice recognition, concept dis disambiguation. Yeah. If somebody says, go, go and get over there and open that door, they've got to be able to understand what that meant. You know, it's that door over there, not that door over there, or whatever. Object manipulation. Let's, let's see an example in action. So, uh, there's a robot called Cosero, slightly. Uh, so, there's a pair of robots here, in fact. So if I point out the one at the back, you've got a wheeled robot base and you've got this arm and head assembly, just like this one here, that also goes up and down a bit, a little bit. Right? So you've got two arms, a head, cameras and the like. And this one here, which is the newer brother of the one at the back, is about to pour some milk into a glass, or into a bowl rather. And the guy at the back is getting very, very worried. He doesn't want to have to clear the mess up if the robot misses. <laughs> These things that we take for granted are hard. You know, we learn how to do them as kids and young adults, but these motor skills are really hard. That's the robot. Okay, hard job, right? Getting it right in that in that can. There it goes. The way this competition works is a little bit different, say, than the soccer, in that they have judges judging them on how well they've done, and you have this running commentary that goes on. An expert will speak in the microphone explaining to the audience, because all these events have public audiences, you know, what exactly is happening. That's probably enough of that for now, anyway. Okay, let's get back to legged robots and why we're here interested in legged robots. Why are we interested in doing research in legged robots? The big push, from my point of view, are robot companions and robot helpers. The Japanese in particular realised about 20 years ago that they were suffering a demographic or looking at a demographic crisis in the sense that um, they have a lot of old people and a lot more old people coming. Um, and whereas in the old days the family groups would have stayed together, now they're splitting up. How are they going to look after these old people? And one of the answers to doing that is to be able to have robots that can uh, work in the home with them. 
maybe helping them with some common tasks, like pouring the milk on that last example, maybe just acting a bit as a companion. It sounds a bit weird when you first hear it, but trust me, it does actually seem to work if you get the robot right and you don't try and do too much with it, you can actually build companion robots. Once you get into that situation of thinking, okay, we'd like robots to be useful in the home and in the hospital and other places, you then have the question, do you put wheels on them or do you put legs on them? And the problem, of course, with wheels is they won't go upstairs and other places. So this is probably the most famous model of a humanoid robot that's out there, the Hondo Asimo robot. Um, Honda and a lot of the other Japanese companies have spent millions and millions and millions of dollars on this problem in the last 15 years. So Honda have this robot here, Asimo. It's coming downstairs now. Job solved, isn't it? Well, not really. Honda won't tell us how much these robots cost and a large part of the cost will be down to the research and development cost. And what Honda do with it, of course, is that they use, a lot of, yeah, they use it a lot for publicity and advertising. Um, but you know, the best guess is that these things probably come to about a million dollars a piece right, when you put those costs in. Yeah. They're not cheap. They're not particularly forgiving. They expect everything to be in the place that they were told when they were programmed. So they're not that intelligent, actually. Um, so we'd like to do better, and we'd like to do cheaper. So as I've already pointed out, of course, we can now get small humanoid robots for relatively small amounts of money. And that's the sort of thing we're working with here. We can look at a lot of the problems that involve the bigger robots, but when they fall, they don't fall so far and they don't tend to break as, as often. That's the basic reasons for doing small robots. So they're complicated electromechanical devices. They've got lots of motors and lots of joints and lots of stuff going on. So it takes quite a lot of computing to work out how to put all this together. So coming back to RoboCup, RoboCup has had humanoid robots in for about 10 years now. Here's a relatively early example. Quite a good example, actually. Um, and they spend a lot of time falling over. So that's going back just a few years. Let's have a look at another, another robot that's been very popular in this activity, by the way, is the um, Sony Abo robot, which was a four-legged robot. So this was an amazingly popular competition. You know, as I say, these RoboCup competitions, they're open to the public. And somewhere like Singapore or China, you have thousands of people coming in to watch these things. And yeah, this is what they always used to go for, were the, were the four-legged robots. Yeah. Unfortunately, Sony stopped making these, so they can't really maintain them anymore. So we've moved on to, in fact, this is the robot that's replaced it in, in the competition. 
You even see odd robots at this place. Um, this is a robot fish. We don't play football with this one, although somebody's uh, tongue-in-cheek suggested water polo with it. <laughs> okay, the other activity that I said we're involved with and is part of RoboCup is RoboCup Rescue. What's the idea here? Well, you know, something nasty happens in the world, an earthquake, a terrorist attack, something like that, a fire even. Um, what then happens next is that human rescuers go in looking for survivors. So the idea of RoboCup Rescue is, well, could we use robots for that phase? Because it's dangerous work going in looking for survivors. You know, if it's an earthquake, more of the building can collapse. If it's a fire, there might be gas pockets in there that might reignite. Um, so you know, can we send robots in to look for survivors? And then we still have to send the humans in because our robots are nowhere near being ready to go in and actually affect a rescue themselves. This is the example of mechanically what's going on in that regard. This, this is a prototype rescue robot. It's got an awful lot of motors and tracks and things on it to get it over rough terrain. And it's got a number of sensors on there, primarily of, um, a, a standard video camera on the top. So the idea is that this thing will, in the, this is running in the competition, um, the competition organisers build a big area out of wood and, and rubbish for these robots to run around and they will hide dummies uh, around the place for the robots to try and find. And the operator for this doesn't know, can't, all it can see is what it sees through the camera on the robot. You know? The spectators can go and look over, look over and see what, how the robot's getting on, um, but the operator just sees the screen. This is a top view of an, from a, another competition. So there's a little bit more rubbish throwing around, but see the idea that these things have got to be able to get around some pretty rough terrain. Right. So it's just had its camera up looking, and now it's brought the camera back down again. There's one of the dummies with a, hat, with a hat waving hand. <laughs> and there's the operator. That's what they're trying to run all this by. They don't know what's out there. No. It's a bit noisy, that track. Let's move on. So to get in among the sort of rubble and stuff that you would find after a disaster, there are lots of mechanical engineering laboratories, um, robot laboratories, if you like, that are going around testing different designs. One big issue with these things is power requirements. They can't run for very long with the battery technology that we have. You can't get enough energy into the things. These robot, or early versions of these robots have actually been used. They were used when the World Trade Center came down 10 years ago. Um, but they were on big, long wires that fed power in and control signals in. Um, in the World Trade Center, they found some human remains with these. So they are being used, and as you might expect, the Japanese are very, again, very, very keen on this stuff because they have a lot of earthquakes. So here are some other designs that are being tried out. Which lab was this, G? Is it Osaka? Tokyo. Tokyo, okay. So this, now it's a legged robot.
and now it's willed. <laughs> you can have the best of both worlds. <laughs> and then it can switch back again, uh, back to the other mode. Let's move on. And this is a... Um, this is a prototype of a robot that might be able to crawl into a, a very narrow space. So you can't really see how it works there, but it's got lots of what are called omnidirectional wheels, which allows it to roll in, a, in many directions and go forward and back. So it's designed as a prototype snake robot. These rescue robots in particular, programming them is not easy. We want to avoid them failing for one thing. It's no good sending in a, a rescue robot to look for survivors if the, if the robot gets stuck and maybe stops the humans getting in. Right? It's got to be reliable, it's got to be able to get in, it's got to be able to get out. We also don't want it to miss people that are in there, survivors that are in there. Um, and one of the things we do here in Oxford is to look at good programming skills, good intelligence skills that allows us to build up systems that, uh, to program these robots. We're not a mechanical engineering department. We can't build the sort of robots we've shown in the last couple of slides, but we can certainly work on the software for them. One of the ways we do that is, again, coming back to RoboCup. They have a, they have a series of competitions called the Virtual Rescue Robots Competitions. In a disaster situation, human responders are a very precious resource. I don't just mean we don't want them to uh, fall ill or die or anything like that. I mean that, that you know, if, you've got to, if you take, say, four robots to a disaster situation and you've got to have a human operating each robot, then, okay, that's safer for the humans, but it, those humans could be doing other useful things like digging people out. So what you really want is to have as few human operators as possible operating as many robots as possible. And again, that's one of the things we're looking into. Also in simulation, we can design new types of sensor because we can put all sorts of interesting sensors on these things to look for people that are covered in dust, you know, um, maybe are unconscious, etc. And test all those in a simulation environment. So the Virtual Rescue Robots competition uses a particular simulator that's basically a computer game. It's designed around a, the innards of a computer game. So this is some um, footage where we're just running a camera in the, in the computer game world. And we've got some, you know, some victims in there. And you can go through and you've got, for some reason, a, a train coming out the end of a building. Right? But, yeah, you, can, you can build all this in simulation, and again, just like in the, in the real physical robot case, you can have an operator sat in front of a screen, and all they see is what the robot sees, and they've got to go through looking for people. And that's one of the things we've been doing over the last few years in these competitions, and we've been pretty good at it, actually. Here's a trophy that we brought back earlier in the year. Rather well, a smart one from Iran. Another thing that we do here is aerial robots. The 
that, that this same push towards better mechanics, better electronics, smaller electronics, smaller batteries, means that we can now build relatively cheap, small electric vehicles. They can be used for eyes in the sky. They can look down for things. They can be used as communication relays, because one of the things that goes to pot when you have a disaster is communications. Um, and they can also be used, we hope, more generally, uh, useful for search and rescue. So here's a video of such a robot. In fact, we've got one here. This is the sort of robot that's running around there. Very lightweight, electrically powered, four, four propellers, four fixed propellers. Um, these things, they don't need a tail rotor. They, um, if they hit you, you're smart, you'll notice it, but they're not going to really hurt you, unlike conventional helicopters. Um, and we can stick cameras under these and send them up in the sky and look out for, um, and look out for people. That, that's what we're trying to do now, or one of the things we're trying to do now. That was being run by a human operator, by the way, by an expert RC pilot. Uh, we don't run ours quite as wildly as that. So what have we been doing here? Let's, let's start the sales pitch. Um, we've been competing now for a few years in various of these competitions. Primarily, the robot football simulation because we're not a mechanical engineering department, and the virtual rescue robots. As I say, we've done pretty well on that in the last few years. And this year, for the very first time, we entered the real robot competition with this robot here. We've only got one robot here in Oxford. What we did this year was to join forces with two other university teams, one in Newport um, in Wales and one in, in, in Crete in Greece. Um, so... By pooling all our robots together, we were able to put one team in for the World Championships this year. And I'm pleased to say that this particular robot actually managed to score a goal, which I was really pleased at. <laughs> um, as I say, we've done a lot of work in the past on the virtual, the virtual robots. Um, this is not a particularly good video. The, the real action is a lot smoother than this. But it's basically simulating these robots in a 3D environment the computer's working out what happens if the robots hit one another, how they should fall over, how they kick the ball, how far the ball should move, etc. Uh, so we can use that to construct, consider team tactics under idealised conditions. We can use that to consider team tactics with many more simulated robots than we might have for physical robots. We can look at... Um, coordination issues, which is a hot topic in artificial intelligence and robotics. And we can look at the design, again, of robots that haven't even been built yet. Why do we do all this? Um, why, why, why go off to these competitions instead of just sitting in our ivory towers up the road and, and thinking great thoughts? Honestly, nothing beats the experience that we get from trying to get these systems to work under very pressured conditions. Right? When you've got half a dozen other teams working around you, all trying to get their um, robots to work a little bit better than you're managing, 
Um, it's amazing what happens. One thing that happens is that sleep tends to go out the window. You don't get much sleep in these events. Having said that, the actual teams that are there, the groups of teams from all over the world, share ideas and build up a real community. Right? So it's not just everybody sat in doing their own thing. It's also great publicity, I have to say, both for the events and also, as I've hopefully tried to um, uh, tell you, is that also it's useful to explain why this science and te technology can be useful. So here's a couple of pictures from one of the, one of the recent competitions. Um, I say these, these events are open to the public. You know? So you do get look, these looks of wonder all over the place from the school kids. Um, um, these, these aren't school kids, but they've got some <laughs> robot in between them there. Right <laughs> so let's have a look at how, where we are in terms of state of the art now. This is... Um, what the best team, the best robot team in the world right now for these robots. So that team is called Be Human. Uh, these teams are both German teams. In a second, it should roll. There we go. So generally played five aside. That's about as many robots as anybody can put together in one time, right? And it's a little bit better than the, than the clip I showed you from a few years back, but not much better. Hmm. But they are getting better. <laughs> They're not very good at, at spotting what the other players are doing. They're really very poor at that. So they're just aiming for the ball all the time, trying to say, OK, I want that ball in that goal. Time's moving on, so let's move on to another one. There's actually a new kid in the block, a new robot that's just come out that um, looks actually a bit better for playing football, uh, which is the one on the, on the team on the left-hand side, Team Darwin. It doesn't do that, of course. That's been sped up. <laughs> It may look silly, but this one won the championship this year, that, that particular league. <laughs> but again, they're not so good yet at spotting what the other players are doing. Are we going to get a goal? <laughs> And we do. <laughs> Funnily enough, the same university that's running that team, they're also working in bigger they've also working on bigger robots. You also see bigger robots at these competitions. Bigger robots, they're all handmade. You can't you can't go off and buy these from a toy factory. So all the teams only have one of each and it's done as a penalty shootout. So that's their robot on the left now. I think it's the most beautiful robot I've seen. Maybe I've got a strange view of beauty, but there you go. So it's, it's got to find the ball and then try and get it in the goal. And again, this particular robot won 
the, that particular league competition this year. So really a very fluid motion. Um, you know, these robots really are in danger of falling over, and when they fall over, they fall harder, they break things. So that's why, the, that's why its creator is behind it a bit nervous. <laughs> Not so good at cooking, uh, kicking yet. But And once, the, once that first whistle occurs, the operators don't do anything. Everything else is happening on the robot. That's the name of the robot, Charlie. <laughs> Pretty awful goalkeeping, but it got there, right? <laughs> Doing this, doing this two-legged motion, it's really hard. Um, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to speed up a bit here. But um, lo robots like the Honda Asimo are, rely a lot on knowing about their environment, what's there, exactly how things work. What we're doing here in Oxford is trying to get away from those restrictions. So Xi's work has been on learning what the, envir what the environment has to offer and what it can do. So he has a particular learning program that runs on this robot and that robot, and here it is running on that robot. Um, may not look a lot, but this is twice as fast as the standard, a standard walk that you get out of the box with that robot. Um, I've, I've said demo here. If you get ready, I think we'll carry on to the end and then run this robot at the end. We've got another one of these condo robots here that we can run by hand. And, and uh, if you like, you can have a go at kicking and getting it to, getting it to kick a ball. But say, we're running a little bit short of time now. So. Okay, what are we up to? Um, what are we planning to do to carry on with this work? As it happens, the FIRA World Championship, the FIRA World Cup, is being held in England next year, in Bristol, in the middle of August, slap specially timed to be halfway between the Olympics and the Paralympics. We'd like to compete. Um, we don't have the cash right now. So if there's anybody out there that knows of a sponsor, <laughs> we are looking for sponsors for next year. We need to buy some new robots to do it, to, do, to um, stand a chance. Otherwise, we're going to be focusing on, with this sort of robot, the legged robot, focusing on what happens when you've got what are called compliant robots, robots with elastic elements in. Humans have elastic elements. We have tendons and muscles. They're very, very good for making sure that you don't um, impart too much energy if you hit something. They, absorb, they, they act as shock absorbers. They're also very good at, at, as energy reserves, so you get better energy consumption. They're just a lot harder to deal with. 
We're also using these robots now for schools outreach events. We're taking the robots around to schools, explaining what it is we do, um, trying to get the kids enthusiastic about it all. And the aerial robots, we're looking at using aerial imagery <coughs> for search and rescue applications. As I said, we came, uh, we're here today from the Department of Computer Science. Uh, what used to be known as the Computing Laboratory, but we changed our name a few months ago because people kept asking us to fix PCs. Um, World-leading research lab in computer science and related fields, and we teach undergraduate and, and graduate degrees in computer science. We're always interested in collaborations with companies and with sponsors, and Susanna here would be love to hear from you later. We've got some forms if anybody would like some more information. I've got my business card here if anybody would like some more information. We also run an industry, um, we also run an industry scheme, so if you're interested in that or you know somebody that's interested in that, use the same form, but just mark out that you're interested in the industrial scheme. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and we'll, as I say, we'll now do a demo with the robot after we've done some questions, I guess. Any questions? Yeah, hi. You talked a lot about the uh, the toy industry. Uh, I guess my question is where you think the, the, the breakthroughs are coming from now. Are they coming from the private sector or are they coming from uh, research groups such as you're in? It's a bit of both. Um, the toy industry side, they, of course, are very much more focused on what can we get out next Christmas or the Christmas after. Um, so they're looking at what, the, what the, the computer and mechanical technology can do, and they're saying, okay, what can we build in a few years' time? Labs like us, uh, you know, and elsewhere across the world, of course, right, we're pushing the software, so we're making it more possible for them to do more things with a particular piece of hardware. So it, it, it is a mixture. Unfortunately, they don't give us any money directly to <laughs> get me on with this work. Sorry, a slightly technical question. Have, have you got an XML standard language for recording experiments and exchanging information with other people? No, we don't use that. We, don't use that. we tend to use videos for explaining what we're doing. So YouTube does get used a lot. Um, and as for XML, it tends to be spreadsheets. You know, in, if, if we're trying to explain exactly how well a particular um, control mechanism works, you know, if somebody emails us and says, can you let us know, we'll send them a spreadsheet or whatever. It's easy enough to convert it. But there isn't a standard as such. No. There's a lot of work in Southampton on electronic notebooks for chemistry experiments. Right. That might be input to you. Mm. It might be in particular with this. What we would like to do with the school stuff is to try and get some, acti some RoboCap activities, more RoboCap activities going on in the schools. And that would certainly be an interesting thought for that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the applications in home and rescue, mm -hmm. but the other obvious area is military. It is. Now, I'll, I'll restrain from asking the obvious ethical questions, but um, a separate question really is, do you benefit at all from the research happening in the military area, or is it so much behind closed doors that there's very little cross-feed? There is very... Sorry, was that the end? Sorry, of I had a second question, actually, which okay. is quite separate, but perhaps if you answer that one first. Maybe I'll go for yes. that one first. Um, we, there is very little cross-feed between the sort of thing we do and the sort of thing the military do for, do for two reasons. One, because a lot of it is being done behind closed door, and also they're not very interested in autonomy at, at present. 
They're interested in teleoperated devices, yeah. you know, building devices that they can you know, run in Afghanistan from, a, from a, uh, a lab in Colorado. They're not so interested in autonomy, which is the sort of thing that interests us. Right, thank you. Um, the second question is a completely different one. It's um, perhaps a bit of a curved ball, but um, in terms of the outreach to schools, um, I wanted to ask you about the skills that are required in um, programming of the computers, of, of the robots, and whether there might be applications for youth groups and others that actually haven't had the benefits of a really good education. Some may be dyslexic and, and, and so forth. Perhaps a bit of an answer to some of the riot issues as well. But is, is there really an opportunity, perhaps, in terms of providing a new kind of activity for those who haven't been educated, maybe out of work, um, and something to really fire them up, instead of skateboarding, building robotics? And um, what levels of skill does that actually require? Is that at all practical? What we're talking about doing with the schools groups is the Lego Mindstorms robotics kits, right, which are specifically designed to be relatively easy to get to. Right? You get a big box of parts, um, relatively easy to plug together, and relatively easy to program. They use what's called a, a visual programming paradigm to program those up. Um, that's probably not the ultimate answer. Um, I would love to be able to um, push some of the rescue stuff, the, the, the virtual rescue robot stuff, is another thing that could be done in that environment. Um, all of these things, I think, are possible. We're trialling out some things with the, the condo robots over the next year. Um, it's a question of trialling it and then trying to get people to fund it. Um, I'm just interested in what you were saying about the schools um, and how there was a thousand um, young com like team members. Um, would you say that those kind of programs, the kind of schools that do that, um, would you say they're mainly, because you were saying about funding problems, are they mainly private institutions or do a lot of state schools also? It has to in? be admitted that those thousand plus kids the proportion from the UK is not high you know, compared with population. Having said that, there is, a, there is a thriving RoboCup community at schools activity, but it's all done by a team of about a dozen keen teachers scattered across the country. So the St Trinian's video, for example, that's, that's a state school, but it's, a, it's what would have been a grammar school. Right? Um, so there, there isn't really any, it's not really a question about how much funding they've got, whether independent or state sector. It's really a question of whether or not you've got the fired up teachers there to push it. Can you give us a, uh, that's all right. Do I need this? Do I not? Um, can you give us just a quick opinion about doctors who are maintaining that it's better to have a robot go inside you than a human hand? Depends on the situation, doesn't it? The, um, there are, there's been quite a lot of work done on surgical robots, and it's been, it's been trialled and used in situations where you need a very steady hand. And surgeons, of course, practice long and hard at having very steady hands, but they can't beat a robot's very steady hands. So when those are used, there's always, the surgeon is always there running the thing. The surgeon is always there ready to go in and do something if the robot doesn't oh, behave itself. They are. And indeed, the whole the, the operating theatres are set up that the robot can be removed very, very quickly if they have to. So the surgeon, the surgeon is still in, in control, but it's being used basically to, to avoid the surgeon 
shaking. Is that right? Yeah. Oh. At it, present, it, anyway. Maybe that will change a bit. But uh. Yeah, if I can add a comment to that. So that's a specific focus of research at the University of Reading okay. with Will Harwin and the haptic, right. where yeah. they're, they're using touch and feel to make a small hand that will go in and feel for lumps and yeah. things like that. Um, you mentioned that you don't work very much with the mechanical engineering department in this area, but in terms of looking at the UK's future in robotics, one of the ingredients we do have is a very strong gaming software industry, particularly up in Scotland. Um, do you see them coming at all into this space, and are they beginning to talk to the mechanical engineering folk who are also an important part of the equation? I mean, you know, we actually have speak to the gaming people because there's quite a clique around here as well. Um, but essentially where it's got to right now is that the games engines are sufficient to do the sorts of things we need them for right now. If we need higher fidelity simulations, then we're going to have to go off and do some more things. And actually we have to do that to a small extent with the, um, with the simulations of these robots. Um, the... Uh, the physics simulations within the game engines, the common game engines, aren't really quite good enough for dealing with a ball that can, can move and spin in space. So uh, we, yeah, I'm not sure where the situation is with the competition. She might know, but uh, you know, there, there was some talk about trying to get a, a, a better, a more accurate simulation in, the, in that environment. We haven't had the game industry coming knocking on our door asking for some of the stuff we do. Hopefully that might change. Yeah. Well, you know, there's been a session on. Everybody's retrenching. <laughs> okay. Want to have a quick demo of the robot? <laughs> so thank you very much. If you want to stay on and watch the uh, robot do its stuff, you're more than welcome to do so. If you want to have a go, you're more than welcome with that as well. <laughs> Thank you. And don't forget the forms if anybody's interested in details. It's actually a more agile robot than the, its big brother, but it doesn't have the sensors that its big brother has. It's got to be able to wave. <laughs> Yes, he is, yeah.
There's no cameras on this one. It doesn't actually know where the ball is. Uh, <laughs> Slight glitch there. <laughs> Are you taking bets yet? <laughs> Not on me. <laughs> it's a very hard competition to go to in the first or second or third year and do well. You've got to build up the expertise. That's the five side. Five side. Yeah. Five. For the the competition we're thinking about going for next year, which is a different league, that would be three aside. Mm. Well, how about the suspense sorry. associated with these games is crushing. I mean, it's all it's worse than a professional <laughs> game. <laughs> 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 All of these robots, by the way, are designed to be able to pick themselves up very easily. <laughs> yeah. Want the ball a bit further down? <laughs> We've got a slight radio range issue here. But, uh, Nice to see you. 